But John chapter 7, starting with verse 1, we read, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for He did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill Him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to Him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Chapter 6 was an interesting chapter because it was the chapter that we saw several miracles. We looked at those. Uh, we saw that Jesus had the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, we know that that count was well over that, but with women and children, it's, the text just says it was 5,000 men. And then after that, we know the crowds were uh, wanting just to spend as much time with Jesus as they possibly could. Obviously, it was uh, you know, buffet time. Uh, Jesus fed them, and they were full, and they thought, hey, this is a great deal. We just hang out with this guy. We get free food. And so uh, they continued to be around, continued to... Uh, draw towards him uh, after he had uh, healed uh, many people he fed the 5,000 and then the text tells us that the people wanted to take him and make him king and there was that famous line that we're going to hear from Jesus over and over again uh, through the book of John uh, my time has not yet come and so Jesus says that because there's a divine plan by the father for what Jesus is here to do, and nothing is going to detour him from doing that. In the Old Testament, it talks about he set his face like flint. And so he is focused upon the cross. That's what he's moving towards, and we'll see that as we go through this text. But also in this text, we're going to see that he alludes to that several times, where he says, my time's not yet come. Meaning, uh, I'm not going to put myself in a position such that it detours from the Father's plan, that uh, gets in the way of what the Father has called me to do and what He's called me to carry out. So we see what happens in the text that we just read, these first five verses, that uh, He's in Galilee, but He didn't want to go back to Judea just yet because the Jews were seeking to, to kill Him. And I think we can understand that. You know, if, if the Word got out that there were some in, in the city of Berthoud that were, they wanted to kill me. It would probably discourage me somewhat from wanting to come here, although if God told me to, I'd still have to do it. Uh, but yet, it's, it's just not a pleasant thought, is it? That I know that I go there, they're, they're going to kill me. But Jesus knew uh, where he was going. He knew what was going to happen. Uh, so, it says the Jews sought to kill him, but uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles was at hand. Now we've seen so far in the book of John that there are those who believed in Jesus and those who didn't. But here we have this insight from the text that his family, his own brothers, didn't believe in him. Verse 4 says it all about them at the end. Uh, it says, you know, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you do these things. These are his brothers talking to him. If all this stuff is true that they're saying about, their, about you, if, if you really do all these things, then you need to show yourself to the world. Everybody needs to know about you if you really do these things. 
You know, how many of you grew up with brothers? Anybody have brothers? I had two brothers, and you know how they can be. Uh, these brothers are, are basically, basically daring him to go. It's like, Jesus, we double-dog dare you to go to Jerusalem, you know? They're daring him. Uh, it's not words of encouragement. I don't believe that they're giving him uh, because the text told us they, they didn't believe in him. So it was almost like, uh, you remember back in the Old Testament with, uh, with Joseph, you know, his brothers didn't care for him a whole lot either, even though he was saying things that were true, uh, that would come to pass. Uh, had a really rocking coat that he wore, you know, many colors. Uh, so we know that growing up with Jesus would have been quite the experience, wouldn't it? Uh, how many would, of you would say about your siblings, your brothers, that they were perfect? <laughs> no, they weren't. They aren't. We know that. My brothers were that way. They were, they were far from perfect. Uh, you know, and I was too, but I know that I was mom and dad's favorite, you know. So, they're pretty close to perfection, I guess. But, and I still am their favorite. You know, if you talk to them, they tell you that. And I think that's why my brothers beat on me so much, you know. Uh, they really wailed on me every time they had it. Both of my brothers played football for Colorado State. And they, they were big guys. And I was just like this little, you can't tell it now, but I was just like this little skinny thing. Short and skinny is what I was. And they just wailed on me all the time. This is like this open target. You know, having a bad day, you know, let's hit Jim. So, but because I was mom and dad's favorite, you know, obviously there was jealousy there, you know, because I was a great kid. But it's really a wonder they didn't throw me into an empty cistern, you know, and sell me off into slavery uh, you know, like they did Joseph. We know, we grow up with that. We grow up with siblings that, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, years ago when I first went into ministry, that was kind of a shock to their system a little bit as well. A lot of people, actually. But uh, you, can, you can kind of picture how these brothers would be. They grew up with Jesus. They saw him never make a mistake. He was always right. You know, he never messed up. Wouldn't that just drive you nuts? I mean, gosh, she's always right. You know, whatever. So uh, we can kind of see with these brothers that uh, we get where they're coming from. They didn't believe in him. They didn't buy into all of this just yet, you know. They were half-brothers or step-brothers of Jesus, uh, we don't know exactly what took place, but obviously Joseph had probably passed away and Mary remarried. And there were other kids. Uh, so uh, a couple of his brothers uh, we know of, uh, Jude and James. Well, Jude, we know him from writing the book of Jude. James wrote the book of James. We love that book, don't we? He's got such encouragement there for us in that book. But... They didn't believe him at this time. Their belief didn't come till after his crucifixion and resurrection. And so they were like so many people at this time. There were those that believed and there were those that didn't. We saw last week uh, where Peter makes that great statement. You know, uh, Jesus asked him because some of his disciples were leaving because of some of the hard teachings he had been giving. 
And they left and he turned to his disciples and said, do you want to leave too? Do you want to go too? And Peter said, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And we know that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. So they believed in him. But not everybody did. Here in our text, in verse 6, he continues this conversation with his brothers. Then Jesus says to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. And then the Jews sought sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No. On the contrary, he deceives the people. So basically, Jesus tells his brothers, You can go to Jerusalem anytime you want because you can fit in. You have no reason to be concerned. But because they hate me, these Jewish religious religious leaders hate me, uh, I must walk wisely. I must be careful. He says, I'm going up to this feast, but I'm not going up right now. So he did go up in a way as not to draw attention to himself, or at least he tried, we see from the text. And it worked for a time, but not for long. So this, this feast that he's going up to, this Feast of Tabernacle, this Feast of Tents, it's also called. What was that all about? This Feast of Tents. We all know what tents are. It reminds me of this story that this guy, uh, some years ago, he went into the doctor because he was having trouble with his, with his dreams. You know, and the doctor said, well, okay, what, what's the problem? And he said, well... It's kind of crazy, but in the, in the daytime, I daydream that I'm a teepee. And then at night, I dream that, that I'm a wigwam. The doctor said, well, I've, I've seen this before. You know, this, this is not all that unusual. The problem is you're too tense. <laughs> it was awesome, Okay. So this feast, this Feast of Tents, required by law for all Jewish males to attend, would take place every year about six months after the Passover celebration. We just saw that in John chapter 6. This feast commemorated the days when the Israelites wandered in the wilderness and lived in tents. It it makes sense. Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Tents, because they lived in tents. Leviticus chapter 23 will give you some more insight on that. But we see in this text that the people in Jerusalem, they, they had different opinions about Jesus, didn't they? Some said, he's good. Some said, he deceives. Now, where do they get that? I mean, as we read through the book of John, where do we get anywhere that he deceives? Well, that's the way that they perceived it anyway. So because of that, some believed and some didn't. And that, that's still true today, isn't it? We know that to be true. We can be talking to someone, a friend of ours, an acquaintance, family member. We bring up the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is very divisive, isn't it? Boy, you either have people who are full on, love Jesus, and you have those on the other side that are just 
Well, I don't want nothing to do with that. Don't even talk to me about Jesus Christ. It's okay to mention God, isn't it? You watch the award shows on TV and sports figures, famous people. I just want to thank God. You know, uh, you hear that a lot. doesn't really give you any insight into their relationship with the Lord, but they give God thanks. And then someone like Tim Tebow, uh, many others come along, hey, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, they lay it right out there, don't they? There is no doubt where they stand with this. So the name of Jesus Christ is just very divisive. Uh, we saw a debate uh, just recently on TV. Maybe you guys caught it between uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, and Ken Ham. And they're talking about creation. They're giving both sides. And it was, it was a fascinating debate. It was very interesting. But you kind of come away with it, from it going, I don't know that what kind of impact it would have made because the people that were on the side with Ken Ham are still on the side with Ken Ham, believing in creation. And then those that are more science-driven behind Bill Nye, maybe still with Bill Nye. But we never want to be in a place where we think that God can't work through that. God can cut through uh, in amazing ways. Just one little phrase that is said can impact someone's lives. And you guys are in the same place. I am as well. We might be talking with someone and it just might be one little thing that we share that cuts through and, and gets through to them. By the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and drawing them to God, the timing is just perfect and they you know, receive the Lord or at least they're more interested in the Lord. So the name of Jesus is very divisive. And we see between the people in this text that there's a debate, isn't there? Some of them say he's good and some of them say no, he, he deceives and when we hear that, we, we would certainly have to ask, well, how? How does he deceive? What's, what's the classic that we get? Oh, the Bible is what? Full of contradictions. But just call them on it. Well, show me. Where? Where, where is it? Where, show me one contradiction in the Bible. Well, I don't know, you know whether there's a contradiction. Somebody told me that there was a contradiction, so I just ran with that. Oh, so you're basing your whole belief system on rumor and <laughs> conjecture, huh? Well, okay, great, but I want to tell you that I believe this 100%. You know, we have that opportunity to say, you know, I've read the Bible and I don't see any, uh, anything in there at all that says it, uh, that it does that. So ultimately, what do you believe? What are you going to do with Jesus? That's what it comes down to, doesn't it? That's what it was for these people. Here's Jesus what are they going to do with him? Some, some think he's good. Some of them think he's a deceiver. So verse 13. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, that's an interesting verse because everything that's going on at this time would tell us that this controversy, this debate, went right up the ladder to the Jewish religious leaders. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. So they certainly didn't want people talking about him. So the people had fear because of that. Verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? I find that an interesting verse, too. You know, they obviously don't know who he is. The Son of God has got it together. <laughs> I mean, he knows what's going on, okay? But they were stuck in their religious traditions and how... You know, you had to have the correct 
biblical uh, training. You had to study under the right individuals to, to be known as a teacher, someone that it could can communicate to someone else. And, you know, that's still true today, too. Uh, I've shared with you guys, somebody comes up and asks me, what's your background? What qualifies you to be a pastor? Hey, graduated from technical school, you know? <laughs> Isn't that the route everybody takes? <laughs> you know, there are some that go to cemetery, I mean seminary, excuse me, slip of the tongue there. <laughs> but, you know, standing where I am, I don't criticize them at all. I would love to have had uh, that experience as well, to be able to have studied under certain men, but not to the point where it brings us into being under law or being legalist. And that's where these uh, Jewish religious leaders were. They were trying to follow the law, every dot and tittle of it, and weren't, but still came across like they were, and then teaching and encouraging the people, you know, through that. And so Jesus comes up to teach, and you know, we have so many teachings of Jesus available to us in the New Testament. Um, but here's one where he just went up to the temple and taught. That's all we're given. It doesn't really give us any indication of what, it, what he's saying, what he's teaching. But wouldn't it be great to sit there at the feet of Jesus and listen to him teach? Because they marveled, it says, uh, at him. How does this man know letters having never studied? How does he know all these things when we don't know him, where did he come from? How did he learn all of this? So they, I think they were impressed with him, even though they still wanted to kill him. So Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So there's a word there I want us to park on tonight. Doctrine. Doctrine. It's got to be important because Jesus mentions it, right? This is not a word that we just made up, you know, over the years of uh, uh, Christianity. It's not just something we pulled out and gave it that name and said, okay, here we go. Uh, doctrine is a word that Jesus referred to. We see it right here. Why is doctrine important? Because it's in God's Word. It is God's Word. It's in God's Word, and it is God's Word. That's doctrine for you. Hold your place in John, but turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at this probably for the rest of the evening. Not to scare you, I don't mean like the whole evening. <laughs> the rest of our time here, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17, a verse you're, you're probably very familiar with. It says that Paul is writing this to Timothy, and he says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, if I read those two verses backwards and I focus on that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, then I would want to know, well, how do I do that? I'd like to be fully equipped, uh, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I would like to, to be able to do that. So how do I do that? 
Well, we get that in the verse right in front of that. In that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So that's the baseline. That's the benchmark that we need to start at in realizing this is God's Word. It is 100% truth. And it is inspired by God. It says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All in the Greek means all. So it's all of it. Everything. Scripture. God's Word. What we hold in our hands. What we're looking at. By inspiration of God. God Himself inspired the very words that we have in this, in this text in front of us. So what makes the Bible so special and so, and so different from the other works of men? Well, we've all got our favorite books that we like to read. There's all these books that are written, written and books that we do enjoy reading. Some of them fiction, some of them not, some of them biographies, autobiographies. We enjoy reading a lot of different books, don't we? So what makes this book so different than other works of men? Because it was authored by God Himself. You know, people that don't believe would look at the Bible and think what? Well, it was authored by a bunch of men over time, and they just kind of wrote down. Well, how does it agree uh, over the course of time? There's no contradiction, and it agrees 100% all the way through. How does that happen if it was just written by a bunch of men, right? So every other book on the planet can be attributed to human inspiration, but the Bible came from a perfect and flawless author, God Himself. So the Bible itself then is also perfect and flawless. The Apostle Peter tells us that God chose to communicate His Word through holy men by causing His Spirit to move them. 2 Peter chapter 1, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the original Greek word for move there denotes the idea of a person carrying something that they have been given. I mean, we can see that. Somebody gives you a bucket and tells you to carry it down the street. You carry it. It's been given to you, so you carry it. That's, that's what this Greek word for moved uh, uh, means. This is exactly what these men who copied down the Scriptures were doing. They were transmitting, if you will, the divine message that God had laid on them. And because they did, we have this written record concerning God's character and will. As believers, we know it to be totally trustworthy because we know that the author of it is totally trustworthy. Therefore, there's, there is no second-guessing the Bible. We, we can rest in its reliability. All of it. The whole thing, from Genesis to the maps. We can rely on it. So God gave His holy word to holy men through His Holy Spirit who wrote it down for all of us. God gave His holy word to holy men through His Holy Spirit who wrote it down for all of us. And we are taught His word by His Holy Spirit. John 14, 26. 
Jesus gives us this promise that we're going to be looking at when we get there. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So we have this promised Holy Spirit that we receive when we accept the Lord. And the Holy Spirit is there to help us in many, many ways. That's the key to remember the best definition that we can give of the Holy Spirit for us, attributed to us, would be helper. To help us. Lord knows we need help. Amen? <laughs> we need help. We are mistakes looking for a place to happen. Most of the time, aren't we? So we need His help. We need His Spirit moving in us, teaching us, counseling us, guiding us. I've said this before, but I believe that the Holy Spirit is probably the most underutilized weapon that we have in our arsenal as a Christian. We just don't rely on the Holy Spirit enough. The Holy Spirit is there available for us to help us, teach us, counsel us, but also what? To correct us and rebuke us when we need it. Out of love from the Father to grow us. So the Holy Spirit whom the Father sends in my name, He will teach you all things. Wow, that's... I haven't been taught all things yet. So I still need to rely on the Holy Spirit to continue to do that work, don't I? I know you guys do too. If you think you know, have been taught all things already and you know it all, let's talk after the service because I could probably learn a whole lot from you. <laughs> so 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us is God who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So we have that guarantee in us by having his Holy Spirit that we have relationship with the Lord. It's stamped on us, a stamp of approval from God, if you will. We have his Holy Spirit. Looking back in John, though, it says, I'll bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. Now that's key for me as well, I hope it is for you, that the Holy Spirit teaches us things, we learn things, and when we're in a crisis, we're, we're going through a tough time, He brings back to remembrance things that He taught us, verses that we can rest on and have comfort in and remember. He brings those things back to us. So we have the opportunity when we're going through those times to be focused on the things around us, right? We saw that in Peter a few weeks back. Jesus comes walking on the water. Peter says, hey, Lord, if you call out to me, I'll come to you on the water. Jesus says, come. Peter steps out of the boat. He's, he's walking on the water. He's doing it. Then what happens? He gets distracted by the wind and the waves, and he starts to sink. Christ still grabs him and pulls him up, saves him, of course. But when we go through those times, we have... The power of the Holy Spirit in us, dwelling in us, to call upon to help us through that. He is the helper. He's there for us. So we have this anointing of His Holy Spirit. And as we see in 1 John, this same Holy Spirit does teach us. 1 John chapter 2. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. The Holy Spirit is there, available, and He wants to teach us. Now there's some confusion in this verse when you look at the 
you don't need anyone to teach you. Uh, if that was the case, nobody would be here this evening, right? We have need of people to teach us, but what this is saying is the Holy Spirit is enough. But keep in mind that the Holy Spirit does speak through others to us to give us guidance and counsel, right? So we're relying on the Holy Spirit all the time, working in us and through us, and also working in others for us as well. So the very Holy Spirit that moved the holy men of God to write down His Word is the same Holy Spirit that lives in us and teaches us and gives us understanding of His Word. See, because sometimes I think we look back, we read these accounts in the Gospels and we think, yeah, but that Holy Spirit was different than the Holy Spirit we have, you know? No, it's the same Holy Spirit. Nothing, nothing different. So we need to know and understand that the Holy Spirit is there and available for us to teach us and guide us and counsel us, to give us what? Understanding of His Word, to help us to understand His doctrine. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So when David the psalmist, led by the Spirit, inspired by God, wrote, For you have magnified your word above all your name. What's up with that, David? What are you saying there? It was God Himself saying, I have magnified my word above my name. Now that's something. When you, when you read that and you really try to soak that in and comprehend what that's trying to teach us. How valuable is this word, God's word, to God Himself? He holds it above His name. We should as well. So it said that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God through His Holy Spirit for us who have His Holy Spirit to teach us His truth by His Holy Spirit which was originally given through His Holy Spirit. So God takes His holy inspired word seriously because it is His holy inspired word. We can rest in that. We can know that, have confidence in that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Again, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is what? Profitable. Profitable. Now there's a word we can relate to. <laughs> we are into things that are profitable, are we not? We get up and we go to work, most of us, every week. If it wasn't profitable, if there was no profit, why go? I mean, why do it? Now, I realize that most of us, yeah, we'd like a little more profit, wouldn't we? We think we deserve a little more profit. I mean, after all, <laughs> you know, hey, I should get more profit. We think that, don't we? So it's profitable. We understand that Webster's is, says that this is something that you put to use for profit. It's beneficial. It's useful. It's helpful. It's to one's advantage. Um, I think about us working over there on the building. A screwdriver or a screw gun is profitable. It's great that we have those tools to use. They're beneficial. They're profitable. It's to our advantage. So the inspired scripture of God is profitable or beneficial to you and me. It's not laborious. It's not something we have to read. We just have to do this. I just got to 
oh, i got to get up early in the morning and look at God's Word. Don't look at it that way. Look at it as, wow, I have the opportunity to open God's Word, to gain from it, to glean from it, to have benefit from it, profit from it each and every day because that's what it's there for, for us. And the Holy Spirit teaching us along the way as well. So here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul lists four specific things that God's inspired word is profitable for. Four things. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. Doctrine, something that's taught. That's just a simple definition of doctrine. It can be the doctrine of just about anything. Had I read the doctrine of how to correctly work on electrical uh, systems, you know, that may have helped. No, I got this, you know. <laughs> had, had I this morning, <laughs> sometimes I think, why are you sharing this? You know, this is, <laughs> I'm heading over here early this morning and I'm thinking, you know what? I had to stop at Lowe's and Greeley. I'll stop at McDonald's and grab me a, you know, a biscuit. Yeah. So I pull up the window. I'm thinking about this project and other things, you know. You know how your mind just gets buzzing. Pull up to the window, pay for the food. So about two blocks down the street, you know, where's my food? <laughs> I didn't stop at the second window. I paid and I just took off. So I'm thinking, you know, you have that moment where you go, oh, should I go back? This could be embarrassing. <laughs> so I went back. I was hungry. You know, so I went back. I pulled up to the window and the gal kind of looked at me funny. And I was just here and I paid, but I didn't get the food. Oh, I saw you drive off. I wondered, what is he doing? <laughs> yeah, that was me. <laughs> that was me. So, it has nothing to do with anything here, but still, just had to share. It was on my mind. So, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. So, doctrine, something is taught. Like I say, it can be a doctrine of just about anything. Uh, you know, you guys know I like to play golf. So, the doctrine of golf, I could study that, get to know it, learn from it. So, doctrine is just a, something that's taught. And then, reproof is criticism for a fault. We love that one, don't we? Oh, yeah. Bring me reproof as a Christian. I love that, right? And then that's followed up with the next good one here, correction, which is bringing to conformity with a standard. So there's a standard that's set out there, and we've got to bring it. Uh, we, gotta, we are to be brought to a place where we conform to that. It's correction and instruction, a direction calling for compliance. If someone's instructing us, this is we should be moving in this direction if we follow that, right? So all four of these for the purpose of or leading to righteousness. So looking at each one of these individually quickly uh, for our profit or benefit. Doctrine, that's what started this whole thing. Remember when we first started looking at doctrine? More important, it says doctrine that leads to righteousness. The word doctrine intimidates us. We think that maybe it's only for theologians, those that have studied in seminary and Bible college and all those things. For some people, they see it as divisive or irrelevant. But in the Bible, doctrine would be simply put the teaching of God's truth. That's doctrine. But it's not just doctrine, it's sound doctrine. 
You see that used uh, in, in the New Testament. Sound doctrine. When something is sound, it has been tested. It's been proven to be reliable or trusted. Scripture describes doctrine in a very positive way. It encourages, it commands sound doctrine, sound truth. Paul exhorts us in Titus chapter 2, speak or to teach the things which are proper for what? For sound doctrine. He's encouraging Titus to do that. Sound doctrine. It's tested, it's reliable, it's trusted. It's truth. It's God's truth. Paul also exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Most of you know, if you've listened to Grace FM, if you've ever attended a Calvary Chapel, we focus on teaching through God's Word. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we're going to teach God's Word because it is sound doctrine. Now there are churches out there that don't do that. They will teach uh, the hot topic of the day or whatever that is. Now don't get me wrong, there is still value in that for us. We can still be encouraged in our walk with the Lord through that. But sound doctrine for us Food, sustenance that we need spiritually comes directly from God's Word as we read it and as we study it. It says, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Because a time is coming when they're not going to endure sound doctrine. We can look around our world and see that to be true a lot today already, right? So doctrine that is sound is truth. Doctrine that is not sound is false. It's the misuse of God's word or the ignoring of it altogether. It says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They'll have no use for it. They'll turn away from the truth. So doctrine. There's a book written by Raul Reese. Some of you may have heard him on the radio. It's called Doctrines. And he breaks down all the different doctrines of the Bible. And there's a word for each one of those. I'll just go through this list real quick. Doctrine of the Bible is bibliology. Doctrine of God is theology. Doctrine of Jesus Christ is Christology. Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. Doctrine of man, anthropology. Doctrine of sin, homertology. I know I didn't pronounce that right, but, you know, sorry. Doctrine of salvation, soteriology. Doctrine of the church is ecclesiology, doctrine of angels, angelology, doctrine of Satan and demons, Satanology, demonology, and doctrine of the last things or the end times is eschatology. Now, out of all of these, which is the most important for us to understand, at least initially? The doctrine of salvation, amen? So, because without it, we have no relationship with Christ. We don't receive His Holy Spirit so we have no capacity to understand sound doctrine. We won't understand God's Word. So the doctrine of salvation is the most important one, at least initially. There's a shallow attitude today that exists towards doctrine. It's a don't give us doctrine. We just want practical truth from the heart. We just want to be 
led by the Spirit. We hear that in churches today. Yes, we all want to be led by the Spirit, but what's the Spirit want to do? To teach us His Word. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? If your heart's leading you in a decision, a choice, or a direction, if your heart is leading you in that, then it must align with the truth of God's Word, inspiration for confirmation. We need that inspiration for confirmation. We know that to be true. Sometimes we try to make a decision out of the flesh. doesn't always work real well. But if we get in the will of God and seek God for that decision-making, we have the guidance that we need. So to get clear and concise direction to navigate through life, we need to use the doctrines that the Bible teaches. So when it isn't sound doctrine, what is it then? Well, Paul gives us three things as we close tonight to lead a person back to sound doctrine. If we get off track, we're not using sound doctrine to guide us, then we need three things to get us back on track. Reproof is one of them. Criticism for a fault. Criticism for bad doctrine. Have you ever quoted a verse that actually wasn't in the Bible? (laughs) There's some out there, aren't there? You know? We quote these things and they're not even actually in the Bible. So a, a well-meaning Christian then corrects us or gives re, reproof. It's criticism for a fault. In humility, we should receive that. We don't always. So it's basically the person saying, uh, uh, sorry, you're wrong. Showing love, showing grace, reveal the truth. But it's got to be done in grace and love. So reproof that leads to righteousness, using God's word, inspired word for the proof. Correction, to bring into conformity with a standard. How many of you messed up on a test when you're in high school or college? Yeah, I was real good at that, actually. So I had to have a lot of correction. Even as a kid, even though I was the favorite, I still needed correction. Correction, this is why you are wrong. In love, showing grace. So, in the first one, you're wrong. This is why you are wrong. It sounds kind of harsh, but we do it, we present it with love and grace. We want to encourage them in that. And then the last one, instruction. It's a direction calling for compliance. Here is the truth. This is the truth. In love and grace, you give them the truth. It's instruction that leads to righteousness, using God's inspired word for that. Now notice the progression here. Bad doctrine requires reproof, correction, and instruction for what? For righteousness. It helps us to grow in our walk with the Lord. It draws us closest to the the Lord. It's for our benefit. So using God's inspired word to lead us into or back to righteousness, as God would want us to have it. Verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. I'm back in the book of John, in case you didn't catch that. John chapter 7, verse 18. So Jesus is not done here. There's still more to be said. This is where we're going to stop this evening. But... We see here that Jesus is talking about doctrine. He's talking about sound doctrine. He brings it up. That's why I brought it up. 
As we look at doctrine, it is important for us to know and understand it. Jesus Himself was talking about it here. As we go through His Word, verse by verse, we look at it for this reason, because there's things there that He wants to teach us that we need to pull out of that. He's dealing with people here who some believed in Him, some didn't. So He wants to make sure that we're right on with our, with our doctrine. So one who speaks from Himself, He's saying in verse 18 here, is seeking His own glory. That's, that's bad doctrine. But one who speaks from God's Word, giving God the glory, that's sound doctrine. We go through life hearing opinions from everybody. We all have opinions, don't we? Opinions are fun. You know, you can just have fun with it just to disagree with someone else. <laughs> I don't agree. Well, that's your opinion. That is my opinion. You got your opinion, I got my opinion. We're disagreeing with each other. We're at odds. But we all have opinions about things. God's new word is not based on opinions. It's based on fact. It's based on truth. And we can rely on that. It's what we've based this church plant upon. It's what the early church was based upon. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, They continued steadfastly in the, what? The apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. What was the apostles' doctrine? What they had of God's word at that point in time. What we have now is way more than what they had then. We have the benefit of learning what they learned, don't we? As they wrote it down, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The apostles' doctrine, they continued steadfastly in that. And in fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. Those are the four things that we're going to be focused on constantly here at the church. And the result of that, if you do that well, you do that correctly, what happens? The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It's the Lord's work. It's His word. He's doing all the work. We're, he's just using us to accomplish it. But staying steadfast in these things, we see what happened in the early church. God still wants to do that today, doesn't He? Yeah, and you might ask me, Pastor Jim, would you like to see uh, you preach like Peter did and 5,000 get saved? Yeah. <laughs> Sure I would. Five get saved. One. <laughs> Just to have that impact on anybody's life by correctly communicating the Word of God, bringing it forth so that someone hears it and responds. It's just a wonderful thing. God is still doing it today. It's not like this happened back then and it doesn't happen anymore. It happens regularly. And so I look forward to seeing how God's going to continue to work. And this small body, uh, how he's going to do that. It's been amazing what he's done already. It just has. Uh, we're just so blessed. So the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We have that to look forward to. Amen?